Welcome to Word Processing, a resource of Oak Ridge Bible Chapel. Listen in as we discuss issues of God, His Word, and His people. Hello everyone, and thank you for joining us for another episode of Word Processing. As always, my name is Andrew, I'm one of the pastors at Oak Ridge Bible Chapel, and I'm joined by the other pastor, Josiah. Good to be with you. I'm here. Good to be with you. Here, as always, we're going to talk about God's Word. This past Sunday, we looked at a passage from Matthew chapter 16, and it was a short one again this week, Josiah, but very punchy again. I'm wondering if, as per usual, we can run back through the text, tell us what happened in this section of Matthew. Yeah, it probably seems at this point like we're really crawling through Matthew chapter 16 bit by bit with these little bite-sized passages. But like you said, there is a lot going on in them, and Mm -hmm. they are, at least for me, sufficiently convicting to slow down i guess yeah i feel like if we went with anything bigger we'd be missing out because there's just like it never feels like these are short sermons per se and i don't mean that in like an insulting way that i realize it now could but no like it it seems like there's a lot of stuff to get through in these short verses more like the implications of it Mm -hmm. are so they drill down deep into my heart and things i need to wrestle with and so this past sunday we looked at this quintessential discipleship passage this famous discipleship passage. But first, Jesus really just confronts the disciples with two fairly offensive statements. The first has to do with his own death, and then the second has to do with following after him or discipleship. And the first, he's just just telling them, I'm going to die. And Peter, on behalf of the disciples, is not too pleased with this and confronts Jesus. In fact, he uses the word rebuke. He rebukes his Lord and says, may it never be, God. This can't happen. And Jesus very quickly and sternly tells him, says, get behind me, Satan, and rebukes Peter in turn. And then he turns to the rest of the disciples and says, if you're going to follow me, if you're going to likewise come behind me, like I just told Peter to do, if you're going to do that, then here's what it's going to look like. And likewise offensive and counterintuitive and confusing, no doubt, to those first century followers of Jesus. Yeah, I always liked the imagery there of like Peter taking him aside. Also, like it doesn't seem like it's like this public thing, but he like took him aside and began to rebuke him. Almost like, you know, come on, Jesus, like stop saying this stuff. Like you're really bringing the mood down at this party here right now. Like we're on a high right now. You're doing well. We're, you know, you just told me that you're going to build your church, whatever that is, upon the confession I just made. Like, come on, you're you're kind of harshing the buzz here, Jesus. Mm -hmm. Yes, him aside. But then it's yeah, this this very strong statement. Get behind me, Satan. And I think it's obviously. More than that, I know what you're saying, but it is more than that in that Peter, as a representative of not only the disciples, but as a first century Jew, he was expecting Messiah to do some very dramatic and specific things. Yes. And when Jesus says, listen, I'm going to go and suffer, and not just suffer, I'm going to suffer at the hands of the leaders of Israel in a formal way. There's going to be a trial. I'm going to suffer at their hands. I'm going to die. And I don't even know if he heard and rise again at Mm -hmm. that point. He's so offended by that. How can you do these messianic tasks if you're suffering and dead? That is not the picture that Peter had in his mind as far as the king coming. And so, yes, for sure, he's killing the buzz, like you so eloquently said. But <laughs> but it's more than that. It is a mission that Peter cannot comprehend. He sure. had a picture in his mind of what the messianic mission would look like. And what Jesus is presenting does not line up with that. And so he, in some ways, lashes out. I have no doubt that he was full of zeal and he had good intentions. I have no idea. And the text doesn't really give us an indication Mm -hmm. either way. But the fact is he was motivated by his own view. In fact, Jesus says that you have your mind set on man's interests and not the interests of God. 
Yeah, it's interesting. This is just a, a total side note, but I always find it interesting thinking of this passage or this conversation rather, because Matthew just says, Jesus began to point out, which is easy with hindsight, but he doesn't actually quote what Jesus was saying to them. So I'm always so curious, like, what did he actually say mm-hmm. in terms of details? Yeah. Um, but what's important? Well, he did tell them. He told them enough and uh, they did not get on board. They did not understand. As we continue, though, Josiah, I noticed we really talked about this idea you, you split the sermon into these two parts, get behind me and follow after me. And there was a pretty strong acknowledgement there that as we look at, Jesus is talking to his disciples who believed in him and were therefore saved with the exception of one. And so he is making a distinction here of someone who's saved, but has a choice when it comes to following. And I guess I'm just asking the question so we can make sure that we're on the same page with everyone here as well. We're saying here that there can be a difference between someone who is saved and someone who is a follower or disciple of Jesus. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of people maybe accidentally or intentionally ignore this distinction. Yeah. But I think scripture makes very clear. And I mean, our experience in this world confirms what scripture makes clear. Yeah. That you can have people who have trusted in Jesus, believe that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, that he died for their sins, rose from the dead. They can believe that. And then for a number of different reasons cannot live like that's true and cannot follow after Jesus and align their life with his call. I mean, scripture is replete with examples of this, but let me give you just a few things so you don't think that I'm making this up. And this is a distinction that I'm using just to salve my conscience for the times (laughs) that I don't follow Jesus. But when Paul writes to the Corinthians, and if you know anything about the Corinthians, you know, it is a train wreck of a church. I had a feeling you were going to go here. Yeah, it is just, when you read it, he calls them brothers, the saints at Corinth. And and yet the things that they're dealing with, we would hold up as pretty heinous sins. Some pretty messed up stuff. Yeah, too. for sure. And yet yeah. he is going to disciple them away from those sins and toward Christ-likeness. At the end of chapter two and chapter three, he starts talking about and almost categorizing people. He says, there's the natural man who is an unregenerate person. He says in verse 14 of chapter two, but a natural man does not accept the things of the spirit of God for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. So this is just a, a natural man with no help from the Lord indwelling him. Okay. And then he contrasts that in verse 15 says, but he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one for who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him. But we have the mind of Christ. So right there, we see these two categories, natural man, spiritual man. But then starting in chapter three, he has a third category here. And this is what we were kind of talking about and what your question is alluding to. It says in verse one, and I brethren could not speak to you. Now notice that. And I brethren, he's talking to the brothers and sisters in Christ, could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. So they're in Christ, but they're babes in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able, for you are still fleshly. And sometimes you hear this called the carnal Christian or the fleshly Christian. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? And are you not walking like mere men, mere natural men? So there's this category where there's the natural man, the spiritual man, and then there's the Corinthians apparently in the first century who are living. They were spiritual men. They were saved people, but they're living like natural men. And he's going to rebuke them for that. He's going to tell them to grow up. And this is a, a category that we see time to time in our own lives, maybe, and in the church. You know, people who are saved, who have trusted in Jesus, 
But because of events in their life, maybe poor teaching, poor discipleship, or hurt that manifests itself in doubts and all sorts of other issues, they start aligning themselves more with the world than with Christ, right? And so we have this category and we have to acknowledge it. Also in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 20 and 21, it says this, Now in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, and some to honor and some to dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. But notice, both vessels are in the house. Mm-hmm. You know, So they're in the house. There are in this house for the master to use good vessels and bad vessels. Some vessels used for honor, some for dishonor. The same there was, if they do this, then. Yes, if they kill sin, if they do godly works, if they follow after the Lord and align themselves with God's plans and purposes, they will be useful to the maker. Mm-hmm. It's not that they're thrown out of the house. It's that they become increasingly useful. And then very similar to the passage in Corinthians, I want to read one more from Hebrews chapter 5, because I still want to make sure people aren't thinking I'm making this up. Mm-hmm. This this category is so very It's not very just important. Jesus, not just Paul, not just Josiah, but <laughs> no. also the author of Hebrews. The author of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11 and following. Now, again, if you are familiar with Hebrews at all, you know that these are believers. These are saints that the author is writing to. And he says this, Concerning him, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. So they are dull in their hearing. They can't fully understand what the author of Hebrews is saying. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, well, he's not calling unregenerate people to be teachers. Of course not. No, these are saints. These are believers. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. So the implication is these people should have been teachers, they're not, and they can't even discern good and evil. But they're saints. So again, we have this category of people who have crossed the threshold into the household of God, into the church they are redeemed, they dwell by the Spirit, but they are not following. They have become dull of hearing. They are not useful to the master, and on and on we could go. So, yes, that's a long answer to your question of, is there this category? Absolutely there is. And I think it's just really important to clarify why this matters. Is because if you do not have that category, suddenly our salvation is about what we accomplish. And when someone makes a big mistake or makes a very negative choice and does something wrong and sins in a certain way, they'd have to always be questioning, is that the sin that broke me out of the family? Have I, like, at what point does someone walk far enough away that they are no longer part of the church or part of mm-hmm. the the salvation that God has, has offered them? If we don't have this category, there is no assurance of salvation. We'd always have to be questioning, have I sinned too much? Where am I on this divine scale of good and evil? Yeah. We become fruit inspectors is yes. what we do. And some ministries will even encourage fruit inspection as a means to build up assurance of salvation. And personally, I just reject that wholesale. Our assurance of salvation does not come from our works. It comes from the person and work of Jesus Christ and the promises he's made. That is where my assurance comes from. Now, do believers grow in the fruit of the Spirit? They do. And over time, but do you take a snapshot of a year? Do you just take a snapshot of 10 years to see that growth? Can you always see the growth? Oftentimes, there's stuff going inside, on inside that you can't fully discern and count as far as fruit. Again, I would leave that to the Lord. 
where do we get our assurance of salvation, that security? It's from the promises of Christ's finished work on the cross and his victorious resurrection. It's not in what I accomplish. When we start doing that, like you just said, when we start measuring fruit for assurance of salvation to discern whether someone is in or outside the household, we have become fruit inspectors. And there's always the question, what is enough fruit? Mm-hmm. Or what is good enough What fruit? is good enough fruit? Yeah. Was that enough? Was that good? What were the motives there? And we are into territory there where we have no business treading as far as I'm concerned. And so we want to be heard rightly in saying we don't applaud, just like the author of Hebrews, just like as Paul does not applaud the carnal Christian. Of course. We just recognize that it's a category. And there are times when living in a fallen world is fallen people. We as believers will go through valleys like that where it seems like fruit is minimal and growth is stunted and we're not hearing the Lord. Just to be cautious to understand that this is a real category that we can pray ourselves through, latch onto the promises of God, sink deeper into the body of Christ to allow them to nurture you and build you up, cling to the word, which is that milk and meat together. There are things we can do. but So we don't want to encourage carnal Christianity, but just understand that there is a place for that where people are saved, but they have not been discipled. They have not been in a church, and maybe they're just ignorant to the fact that their church is not teaching them meat. Maybe they've just grown up in a church where all they've had is pablum. All they've had is milk and they don't know any better. Mm -hmm. And so they're stuck in this stunted growth and they don't know any. So again, we just, we don't want to belabor this point, but there is a category (laughs) for this. Okay. You got to tell me to be quiet. Now that we've planted our theological flag here. No, let's continue on. Let's talk about discipleship. Let's break it into Mm -hmm. these two categories. So we first started off with get behind me. And I love that you open this section with such a simple illustration of it's pretty hard to follow someone if you're not first behind them. Mm-hmm. I mean, a simple statement, but I thought one that was very, you know, it was one of those, I called those like a nodder. Like I was like, <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, that totally makes sense. Like not along with that. But one of the things we talked about is Peter and how in his rebuke of Christ, he ended up being or acting as a stumbling block or could have been a stumbling block, I guess, in Christ's ultimate plan and, and purpose. And we talked about how this is relatable. It's often the case where we don't understand God's plan, where we don't understand his purposes, his statements might seem offensive to us or counterintuitive to us. And so we ask these questions of, you know, why God or why not God when it comes to our health or our jobs or our families, our relationships, etc. Now, you made a very clear statement. This is not always done in a way that is irreverent or done in a way that is sinful. Of course, asking God, why? Why are you doing this? That is not an irreverent question or asking God for things, you know, heal this person, help me find a job. These are not sinful questions. But there seems to be an illusion there that we can at some point cross to a point of being irreverent or being sinful in the sake that we are putting ourselves as a stumbling block in between Christ and the path he has before us, perhaps. How do we discern the difference there? Where do we get in in God's way? Not that we can ultimately stop God from doing what God wants to do, but... Yeah, and it's going to be... Honestly, someone has to discern this for themselves. Where of course, individual consciences. But maybe some guidelines. I think that it's really the difference is in how we ask and where we stop in our asking. Hmm. So how we ask, are we accusing God? Are yeah. we calling into question his character, maligning his character? Or are we actually seeking to understand? I think we know the difference when we ask those questions. That's a really good point. Yeah. You know, is it, you know, where were you last night? Or was it? Where were you last night? Same question, different emphasis. One cool. is seeking to understand, right? One is the the accusation is built right into the question. It's a question mark, but it's not really a question mark. I had a little shiver there when I saw like Josiah, parent of five, like <laughs> your sternness coming through there. Ooh. At this point, my eight-year-old isn't out at night and, and I don't have to ask that question. That but I'm preparing. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I'm gearing up for those moments. Yeah. 
know, so that is the question. Like, are we seeking to malign his character uh, with the questions we ask? Like, God, what are you doing? Are you kidding me? Like, what are you doing? That is... Accusing. Let it not be so, Lord. Exactly. Exactly what It Peter will never doing, be. Right? No, you're wrong. Right. And, and you can see examples in scripture of people asking legitimate questions of God. I thought of immediately uh, in Habakkuk. It's a book, if you're familiar at all, where the prophet is asking questions of God. And he, in fact, the book opens and he says, How long, O Lord, will I call for help and you will not hear? I call violence. And, and he's just aching for his people and calling out to God. And then God actually answers him. He responds and says, here's what's going on. And so there is a sense in which we can ask questions, not demanding answers, but expecting. Inviting. May. Yeah. yeah, inviting answers. I'm being prepared for them and then being willing to accept the answer when we get it. Sometimes we need to accept the silence as well. You know, sometimes we are just not privy. I think of Job. You know, where were you, O oh man, when I laid the foundations of the earth? That has to be our default posture when we go to the throne room of God and ask him questions about what on earth is he up to? with all humility. So that's how we ask the question, I think. Yeah, and then you mentioned the idea of like, where do we stop? Yeah, so where we stop matters. Do we stop at the accusation or at the question? Or do we only stop when we get the answer that we want? Or do we stop, as the psalmists oftentimes illustrate, where they circle back after their questions to a word of praise? So just for an example, in Psalm 10, Psalm 10 is one of these psalms where the psalmist starts with these very poignant and very relatable questions. Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? My goodness, have we not felt that in our lives? We know it's not true. He's not far from us and he's not ignoring us. But man, because of my sinfulness, the sinfulness of this world, my own disappointment, it can sure feel like that at times. So the psalmist here is speaking my language. You know, where are you, O God? And he goes through this psalm and, and he ends in verse 16 by saying, the Lord is king forever and ever. Nations have perished from this land. O Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to vindicate the orphan and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth will no longer cause terror. I just love that. The psalm in one work begins with these heart cries. God, where on earth are you? But you don't get the sense it's this accusatory question. And if you did, he quickly resolves that by getting to the end and saying, he's king of kings. Like, what can we say? And so, again, I'd say how we ask God these questions, there's nothing wrong with these asking these questions. And I think I said on Sunday, they can be a springboard for worship. You know, we see our finitude, we see our dependence in these needs, and we cry out to God, but we don't stop at the questions. We say, Lord, whatever happens, however you answer or don't answer me in this life, whatever you say, you are King of Kings, you are Lord, you are sovereign, fill in the blank, and on we go. So again, it kind of leads us to this point of, are we questioning his character? Are we challenging his character? Where are we saying, yeah, I have some legitimate questions. I don't understand this. I perhaps even don't like this yeah. or the way it's going. That's not a problem. David cries out like that often. Yeah. And yet to not let that malign our worship or malign our understanding of who God is and how good he is. And you can see right away about how growing from milk to meat, how growing in our understanding of who God is and how he works helps prepare us to not cross that line. It doesn't stop the hardships from coming. It doesn't stop the suffering. It doesn't stop the questions from arising in our hearts. But we will have a deeper well from which to draw of God's character if we know him better and better, if we are not still on milk. You can see how a carnal Christian would really struggle to not sin in these questions. They don't know God. They don't have ears to hear. They're just calling out in their fleshly frustration. But for those of us who grow in our knowledge of the Lord, by his grace, week after week, month after month, year after year, when we come to these questions where we see our plans and purposes 
butting up against God's perceived plans and purposes. And there is frustration and there is questions. We don't immediately go to accusation. Instead, we pull back and say, okay, I don't know what's going on here, but I know who you are. So I'm going to ask this question in light of who I know you are. Yeah, that's huge. Well, in the next part of the text, we turn to follow after me. And we have this very well-known, or at least oft-quoted verse about taking up your cross. And as you alluded to on Sunday, often this phrase is used to describe an inconvenience. You know, that's just my cross to bear. Can you explain a bit more what Jesus is actually getting at here? Yeah, I mean, context is important. I feel like we bang on that drum pretty regularly. Have we talked about context on here (laughs) before? I think so. Uh, What would the disciples have heard when Jesus said these words? Mm -hmm. Would they have heard, oh, that's an inconvenience? I don't think so. No, I don't think that that's what they heard. Would they have heard the simplicity of what we sometimes slap on that statement? No way. The cross, as I mentioned on Sunday, was what Rome introduced into the culture for shameful execution. Yeah. You know, and at the time that Jesus is saying this, the disciples were well aware of that. You know, people were being crucified. And the condemned in that case were forced to publicly carry at least part of the instrument of their pending torture and execution through the streets to show everyone that Rome wins. Yeah. Okay, that this is what happens to those who cross Rome. And which is a, a huge point here. Roman citizens were not crucified. It was that yeah. horrible. It was something they used on the nations they were oppressing. I'm disappointed you didn't catch the pun, though, as well. Did the, I miss it? Those who it. cross Rome. Oh, I didn't even hear oh, it. I thought that was right up your I'm alley. I'm so sorry. I was <laughs> focused okay. on what I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> so in, in the context, Jesus isn't demanding that we carry a cross like Rome did. He's saying we have to pick it up ourselves, right? So in Rome, they put it on the 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 condemned. Jesus is saying, no, you got to pick it up yourself. And really this, in the context of this passage, is the ultimate picture of submission to the will of the Lord. Pick it up, deny yourself, and carry this instrument of suffering with you. And this instrument of public shame. Are you willing to do that? And it's, I don't think any accident that comes after deny yourself, because I think it is the extreme terminus of that self-denial. Am I willing to deny, lay down everything I am to the point of even my reputation and death? Yeah. That's the ultimate call. And so it's more of a posture. Am I willing to follow after him and deny myself to that extreme? And it's an invitation to that. That's what following after Jesus looks like. It's not just mere inconvenience. This is the cross I have to bury, like you mentioned. No, no, it's much more potentially extreme than that. Yeah, which comes back to the picture that we're talking about in that carnal Christians obviously are not willing to give up their reputation or their enjoyment or their pleasure or their anything for the sake of Christ. And he's calling us to this extreme, an extreme that most of us may not reach this side of eternity. And yet it's the call that we push towards that we, as Paul says, aiming for that goal of finishing well, of being able to say, yeah, I was willing to sacrifice everything for the sake of Christ. Yeah, and it's not necessarily a call to martyrdom. Not everyone, praise God, will have to endure that. Not even everyone who was originally hearing this command was called to martyrdom. We all have different walks that the Lord has for us, but the call is to be willing to go to martyrdom. The call is to prepare our hearts for a self-denial that leaves no stone unturned, knowing that he has bought the deed to our lives with his blood, signed the paperwork, we've given him the keys. And it is a matter of living life in light of that. That's what discipleship looks like. It's a willingness to go to that extreme, praying that we won't have to. At least I pray that. Mm-hmm, for sure. Well, Josiah, just as we finish in this last few minutes here, I really liked and appreciated your conclusionary application this week. It was very helpful because it was very simple. I know I'm one of those people that when I have a big to-do list, I tend to get overwhelmed 
But the reality is you have to start somewhere. And what I liked about Sunday's applications is you didn't say we need to solve all this immediately, but you said, let's take at least a step. Let's pick one thing. Can you just quickly in the time we have left, run us back through the application you left us with on Sunday? Yeah. And right before I do that, let me say that we just talked about cross carrying and self-denial. He does talk about rewards. And that is worth it. Yes. So this is not just pick up your cross, follow him. Because if you're listening to this, you'd say, well, if I'm saved, why would I bother? That sounds terrible. There is incredible rewards and incredible glory for the one who saved us on the line. And so it is well worth it to yes, take up that cross. Yes, that's a, an important distinction <laughs> that we, we add in there. Yes. <laughs> and so then we come to application. Okay, so how can I move forward? So because of all that, yes. what now? Yes. <laughs> so just four quick steps that I labeled identify, admit, ask, and act. So identify something in your life that God is calling you to do clearly that you're not yet doing. And that could be a number of different things. It could be, I gave examples of sharing the gospel with someone. Are we called to share the gospel? Clearly. Am I doing that? Mm, Could I do it more? Maybe. You know, that's very clear. There's a line there. Am I called to be generous in my time and my finances? Yes. Am I? Could I improve? So just identify something that the Lord has laid on your heart that you know you are called to do that you're not yet doing or could improve on. So identify that one thing. Then admit that in not doing it, you're being a stumbling block. Yep. You are standing between God's plans and purposes and your own, and you're letting your own trump the Lord's. Because we know that God is asking you to make that step and you are not taking that step. Mm-hmm. So identify, admit that you're being a stumbling block, and then ask for God's help. Okay, I need to get behind the Lord and follow after him, but I need God's help to do that. And then finally act. And that's just the obvious end point to this. Act on it. You know, take steps toward denying yourself, picking up that cross and following Jesus in that single area. Which I think connects back so well to the opening illustration you had on Sunday, which was the idea of joining a gym, but never going and expecting to somehow <laughs> gain benefit from it. <laughs> yes. Right. And I think that's the same thing. You know, we can we can identify sin in our life or areas where God is calling us to something. We can ask for his help, admit that we're being a stumbling block. But if we don't actually do something about it, it's like joining a gym and never going. And we do so knowing that there are benefits to the sacrifices we make. In fact, Jesus promises the benefits we pick up for these sacrifices far outstretch, far outpace anything that we lay down. It's just a matter of, by faith, being willing to deny ourselves and take him up on that offer. Mm. Well, Josiah, thanks for another exciting conversation on Matthew chapter 16. We're nearly done the chapter, I think. We just have a couple more verses in a, in a couple of weeks. So uh, exciting to see where God's word takes us next. But until next time, go with grace and peace, listener. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. We hope you are encouraged and learned something new. Visit oakridgebiblechapel.org to listen to sermons and for more information.